0: In a unique collaboration, Georgetown University and the Catholic University of America offer a Master of Arts or Certificate in Catholic Clinical Ethics. The program combines clinical ethics, theological engagement, and Catholic teachings. Fully online courses are followed by an in-person 4-day summer intensive. Learn more at clinicalbioethics.georgetown.edu/cace.
1: Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dr. Wes Ely. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine with subspecialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Ely's research has focused on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU-acquired brain disease. I want to talk to Dr. West because while I've met him in real life when I was in Nashville some years ago, I was just taken in and impressed by him. And also the heavy work that he does. I mean, it's he meets with people and their families when really these are probably the worst moments of their life. And yet he's somebody that exudes a calmness, a joy. He looks you in the eye when he talks to you and you understand that he sees you as a whole person. And you know what? He is the author of the book, Every Deep Drawn Breath. And this book is basically his quest to return humanity to doctoring by tending the patients' emotional and spiritual needs. And a book also is about his effort to end the practice in hospital ICUs that leave patients suffering from Long-Term Brain Problems. The title is from East of Eden by John Steinbeck. The skin tastes the air and every deep drawn breath is sweet. His book also won a Christopher Award. It is one of 12 books for young adults and young people that the Christopher Awards recognize. And if you're wondering what are the CRISPR Awards, it's a Christian organization that celebrates works that exemplify the Chinese proverb, it's better to light one candle than a curse to darkness, and also works that affirm the highest values of the human spirit. One other reason I wanted to talk to Dr. Ely is that critical care is all the more relevant now, post-COVID, and in some places where they're having more COVID outbreaks and people are going to the hospital and needing critical care, We need to understand what critical care looks like when it cares for the human person. And also Dr. Ely talks to us about how we can advocate for our families. Lots of things for you to take away and think about. Just all the big questions, really, about how do we show up in this world and share our faith with others without necessarily having to ever say a word about the gospel. Plus, he's a great storyteller. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world, and that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast, and that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Wes Ely is up next. Dr. Wes Ely, thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast.
0: Oh, it's a wonderful thing to be here with you today, Glory. The last time we were together, we gave each other a huge hug, and it's <laughs> yes. good to be back together for this podcast.
1: Yes, and I'm so glad to amplify your voice in this area in Catholic health care, and you wrote a beautiful book about it, Every Deep Drawn Breath, but you have so much experience. I'm sure that's not even in the book, and so many stories to share. But I, I want to just give some people some grounding about your research. You know, you focused on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU acquired brain diseases, all kinds of things. What does brain disease mean here? Can you share an example?
0: Sure. Yeah. And and just for the listeners, since they're just getting started with the podcast here, mm-hmm. I, I think the book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, is really about people in life. I hope that you found that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since it's narrative nonfiction, it's really the voices of these patients, yeah. their bravery, their stories. And I just recorded their stories. And every person in there is a real person, a real name. All the quotes are directly transcribed from things that they said. Mm. And uh, the type of brain disease that these people suffered from and that every person listening to this will come into contact with somebody with this problem in their life is that when we get sick and we go into a hospital, oftentimes, and people just don't know this, but we've worked to prove this scientifically over the past 20 years, people lose brain cells while they're sick. Mm. And so if you get a pneumonia or if you just get anything that, you know, dehydration, delirium, anything that lands you in a hospital setting. By the time you leave that hospital, you have gotten a circumstance where you have a a very high risk, over 50 percent of having a decrement in how well your memory works, Mm. how well your organizational skills work. And it can be thought of as like a rapidly acquired mild to moderate dementia in many oh. circumstances.
1: Okay. Can we recover from that?
0: <laughs> I mean... Yeah, yeah. No, we can recover from that. If you come in for like an elective minor surgery or something, then mm-hmm. usually most people like that don't get such a decrement, but they do in surgery. But if you come in for an illness that lands you in ICU, that'd be the greatest you know, risk of this acquired brain dysfunction. And it really falls into a camp of, as I said, a mild to moderate Decorate memory and the ability to do your job, remember people's names, mm-hmm. balance your bank account, that sort of thing. And then over the weeks and months that occur afterwards, we do lots of cognitive rehabilitation. We have people do, mm-hmm. if they like word games, we do Scrabble. If they like numbers, we do Sudoku, things oh. like that that can really build your brain back because Just think about if you had a cast on your arm for six weeks, your bicep muscle would atrophy to some degree.
1: Yes, it would. Well, when
0: you get sick, your brain goes through similar atrophy, but you can exercise your arm again and grow that muscle back. And you Mm -hmm. can do the same thing with your brain after you get out of an illness.
1: You know, now I know why my daddy did the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. He's like, I got to get my brain, you know, staying. And and even when he was in his late 80s, he died in 2021. He was still with it brain-wise. Now I'm realizing that crossword puzzle did something for him.
0: You know, and there was a great study (laughs) called the Nun Study, where they followed these nuns who kept journals over many years. It was kind of a great contained way of tracking. And by their handwriting And by the interactions that they had over the years, they were able to show the slow cognitive decline of dementia. And what I'm saying is that we can have in the natural circumstance, a slow cognitive decline, but there could also be a rapid acceleration of it when we get sick. And so think about your mom getting sick or your best friend getting sick. When they come out, we have to be there for them. You know, we want to be there to support them and to build them up and and to also believe them so that when they're having trouble, we don't diss them and make them think that they're crazy because they look normal, because right. they, they oftentimes get discarded and kind of silenced. And then that makes them scared because they think that they're like, nobody believes their circumstances.
1: So I know that one of the, cause I'm thinking about when you go into the hospital and you're sick enough that they need to, I guess, medically induce a coma and they keep you under. I mean, that happened to my mom. And it was something different when she came out, you know, there was something different, but I'm trying to figure out, and maybe you can help us because you, this is right in your work. You talk about it in the book. Are there some things we need to, that we should be considering with medically induced comas? Maybe that we haven't recognized. And I think even more so with COVID, you know, some people were put under with COVID as a means of treatment, but I'm not saying we shouldn't do it but you're the doctor here. What are some things we need to understand as people that might have to care for our loved ones that have come out of that situation?
0: Sure. So yeah, there's a lot in that, what you just asked, but let's unpack it a little bit. First off for the listeners, so I'm an ICU physician at Vanderbilt University and I've been here for 25 years. That's in Nashville, Tennessee. And I also work at the VA hospital. And for 25 years, we've been doing research sponsored by the NIH, And the VA. And so thousands and thousands of patients that we have studied, published on, and reported in in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet. Mm -hmm. And what we learned was that if you get delirium, that is, if you get a place in your illness when you things aren't making sense, you you don't have to be hallucinating, but you could be, but you just can't pay attention. your, Mm -hmm. Your brain is drifting. That's delirium during an illness. And in COVID, by the way, it came in spades. Mm-hmm. Um, delirium in pre-COVID for sick people would last on average three or four days. In COVID, it was lasting two or three weeks in Ooh. some patients, real bad. And, and when you get really sick and land on life support, where, it's where I care for you uh, on a ventilator or a dialysis machine, et cetera, this is the circumstance where we do use sedatives to put you into a coma to have you tolerate the life support. And what we have done wrong, and what I talk about in every deep-drawn breath, which I abbreviate EDDB, just the simpler way to say (laughs) the title, EDDB. And, And the title, by the way, comes from Steinbeck's East of Eden. There's a lot of literature and poetry in EDDB. I try to connect the patient's stories through the world of literature and poetry. But what I tell a story is that through the 1990s and early 2000s, Medicine had thought it was okay to do this, to put people into this medically induced coma. And what we proved between 2000, essentially in 2019, was that it wasn't okay. And mm. that what we were doing was we were throwing kerosene on a fire. The fire was their disease, their infection right. or whatever landed them in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And when we added the benzodiazepines and propofol, which is the Michael Jackson drug, Mm-hmm. And things like Valium, you might have heard of, a sedative, yeah. sedative drug, um, midazolam, lorazepam. These drugs are very toxic to the brain. And when you, if you get them for just a, a few hours or even a day, it's one thing. It's okay. But if you get them for multiple days on end and you're immobilized in a bed, what it does, Gloria, is it depersonalizes <laughs> you, it silences you. And it creates, actually creates new disease in your body Mm. so that while I'm sitting there taking care of you, and I think, oh, it's no big deal. I'm just adding these sedatives. What we've now proven Mm. without a doubt is that that patient is acquiring new brain disease, new muscle and nerve disease. And when they leave, they leave with something called PICS, post-intensive care syndrome or P-I-C-S. And that PICS is present in the majority of people after they leave critical illness circumstances, maybe 60, 70% of them actually. And what it's comprised of is is four things. Acquired dementia, as I mentioned earlier, but also PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and then those are neck up problems. And then neck down, they have a muscle and nerve disease, which makes it difficult to walk upstairs or do your physical activity. And these things feed on one another. So part of the stories of these patients in EDDV is to bring this to light, so that all of you can know what you and/or your loved ones are going through, because uncertainty is what drives us crazy. When at least we know what we're doing, what we're going through, then we can we can handle it.
1: So how might we advocate for our loved ones then, if they end up in the ICU and are intubated, sedated? What do we say? What do we do?
0: What we want to do. And I'll start from a a humanist perspective: Mm -hmm. is that we want to remember, and we want to help the medical staff remember. Like, this is an entire person. Okay, Mm. this is not just a set of lungs on a ventilator. This is not just a kidney infection. It's it's an entire person of inestimable worth. This is a priceless human being. And you might think, oh, that's so warm and fuzzy for you to say it. But honestly, when somebody comes in with one specific problem, all too often I have been guilty of focusing down on that one problem and kind of missing the boat on the fact that this is an entire person. Mm. And so, what you can do advocacy wise is say things like, Doctor, I want to tell you about my loved one so that you'll understand who they are. Mm. And, and I actually have created a little tool for myself, Gloria. Yeah. As a physician, I always ask four questions of every mm-hmm. family and or patient What's your favorite music? <laughs> What's your favorite food? Do you have any pets and do you have any hobbies? And I find if I ask those four things, pets, food, music, and hobbies, I challenge any medical professional to not begin to see that person as more of a human being. And what it pushes the person to do from a medical perspective is say, I want to see and talk to this person. I want to wake them up. I want to get them out of bed. I want them to walk. And so help us see who they are. That's your first focus of advocacy. And then the second thing to know, and this is all explained in every deep drawn breath, is that we created a safety bundle, a safety checklist, just like your pilot would use flying an airplane across the country. So if you get on an airplane today, there's no way they're taking off on that runway without running through the safety checklist. I thought we need to create a safety checklist to get people through critical illness. So we did an abbreviated called the A2F bundle, the letter A number two, letter F bundle. And that's an abbreviation for ABCDEF. Okay. And what the um. ABCDEF bundle is, 400 scientific papers, 20 years of research, all summarized down into this safety checklist, which takes about 30 seconds to one minute for the nurses to analyze and say on rounds at the bedside, which gets at, is my patient in pain? Can I wake them up, get them off the ventilator, and out of bed, and mobilize them and have the family at the bedside?
2: Right.
0: So what A through F stands for, for example, is A is analgesia, just pain control. B is both turning off the sedation and turning off the ventilator every day. Oh. Turning off every day. Because that way we can see if they wake up and see if they need the ventilator anymore. And It turns out that the research we proved, so if you don't turn it off, you don't know if they still need it. It, That sounds stupid, but (laughs) we assume too often they keep needing it, but you have to just turn it off. If they do need it, we turn it back on at half the dose. Uh, The C is choice of drug, and the idea there is to avoid benzos. Listen to this. Prior to COVID, we had essentially eliminated benzodiazepines from use in ICUs. It took us 20 years to do it. We had succeeded. It was amazing. We had nurses who had never used a benzo. Early in COVID, papers were published showing that 90% of COVID patients were on benzos again. Oh, no. Yeah, it was terrible. And the reason it happened was that it all happened so fast that people ran out of the other sedation. So they pulled out of the warehouses, essentially, the older drugs, and then they got used to it again.
1: Oh, no. You might
0: say, well, why would a medical professional get used to a benzo? Well. You put the patient on that, they are in such a deep coma that they don't talk, they sit still, and you can tidy up your bed and have the patient's bed look all clean. It lulls you into complacency of thinking, oh, this is okay again. And right. in fact, when we were afraid of going in the room with before vaccines, and we didn't have enough PPE, that was a surefire way to have that patient like a lump on a log and doing right. nothing. But all these new nurses and doctors that filled up the units who hadn't been in ICUs, they didn't know how dangerous they were. So D is delirium, E is early mobility, meaning get him out of the bed, and F is mm. family. Mm. And, uh, and Gloria, we did a study in COVID, 2,100 people. They told me, Wes, get on get on Twitter and we'll, <laughs> we'll do the study. And I was like, Twitter? No, I'm gray-haired. I'm old. You don't <laughs> want me on Twitter. Like, no, no, just get on there. Let's advertise this study. And it worked. We, we enrolled 2,100 people from 15 countries in two weeks. Oh, wow. And these COVID patients taught us that two things were driving the delirium overuse of benzos and underuse of family so yeah so we have to get back what we had before we have to rebuild the safe way of caring for people and the family needs to advocate i need to be there open your visitation up it's safe now why are you have them on sedation still let's wake them up today get them out of bed and that sort of advocacy will push me as a doctor to do the right thing
1: we'll be right back I guess when you focus on the whole person and you weave literature and poetry into the book, I imagine that shows that you have changed your approach to medicine, you know, from when you probably were an early doctor to now.
0: I absolutely changed my approach. And I thought that science was enough. Mm. I thought that going to medical school and learning all the science and reading my medical journals would be enough for me to be a good doctor. But it's not. Mm. I mean, science is beautiful and I love it. And I believe in a higher power, God who created the beauty of how our bodies work. And I am so faithful to that notion. And also what I learned was that I was not giving myself to my patients as a complete healer. And what I was doing was that I was using my science as a crutch Mm. and I was holding back. I was pulling back to protect myself and my feelings Osler, who's one of the founding fathers of medicine, talks about this Latin phrase equanimitas. And equanimitas means essentially equanimity or even keeledness, okay. you know, keeping a steady, steady rudder. I over-applied that concept of equanimity. And what I thought it meant was to deliver the medicine, the science, but to keep myself held back so that I don't get burned out. And what my patients taught me was that. I was burning out because I was holding back. For example, there's a patient in the book named Marcus Cobb. And Marcus came to me blue. So I'll tell you a Mm. little story. So he came to me blue. He had a heart defect congenitally. And he looked like a Smurf. Mm. And he said, Dr. Ely, I'm coming down from the mountains. And many doctors have told me that I'm going to die soon. But I'm now almost 30. And they've all been wrong. But my ankles are starting to swell. I noticed them. my heart is getting worse and I'm getting more out of breath. So I'm now wondering if I should get a transplant. And I was a newly minted transplant doctor. And Marcus was my first patient. Well, in that room that day, I started sweating, Mm. physically sweating. And I was so unsure. Why am I sweating? Why am I so nervous? I've never done it before or since. What I realized was that I didn't know the answers about when Mm -hmm. he should get his transplant. And it made me uncomfortable to tell him, I don't know. Mm. Now that's kind of embarrassing for me to say now, because I'm very comfortable now telling patients that I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I was a young, non-gray haired doctor at the time. (laughs) And what ended up happening that day was that Marcus left. I told him, you know, adjust your medicines this way and that. And I moved from that hospital over to Vanderbilt Hospital. And a few years later, I walked into a room and opened the door and there was Marcus and his wife, Danita. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I said to them, why did you travel eight hours to come see me, the bumbling idiot doctor (laughs) who sweated all over the room that day when I saw you those years ago? They said, because at the end of our meeting, you said you didn't know what the right answer was, even though we had seen your insecurity and your sweating. Mm -hmm. And we knew then that you were the doctor for us because you, you became vulnerable to us. Mm. And that's the kind of person we want to be with. So I failed more often than I've succeeded. But in this case, my failure became the success that upon which I based my relationship with Marcus. And he did go on to get his transplant and he did go on to parachute out of airplanes and have an amazing life. But that's my point is that, yes, I changed, but my patience changed me,
1: Mm.
0: Gloria. The patience taught me how to be a better healer.
1: And one of those patients that you had, and I think the listeners will find this interesting, is you actually helped Maya Angelou. Yeah. Can you tell that story?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was an amazing experience. You know, when I was a boy, my dad left us and it was hard. We we had no money and I got a job in a farm. And on that farm, it was my job to be in the fields at four in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'd work from four until seven every day. And I worked side by side with a bunch of pickers, some of whom were American, but many of whom were Latino, Latinx, mm-hmm. and spoke Spanish as their primary language.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And next to those pickers, and I write about this in EDDB, I really felt a wonderful camaraderie and I felt like I belonged.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I didn't. I didn't belong. Because what I realized over time was that I was going to leave and I was going to go you know to school, and I had people lifting me up, and even though I didn't have my dad with me, I had other people to help me. You know, I had an mm-hmm. uncle who really looked after me, and they would have, you know, a tooth abscess that would turn into a, a gap in their smile, or a mm-hmm. cut in their leg and turn into an abscess. Little things that that just didn't get taken care of would become big problems. And so, I started to realize that they, you know, it was kind of when I was reading Maya Angela's book, I Don't Other the Birds, Things, and she was silenced by her trauma. And they were essentially silenced too. And I thought this is testimonial injustice, which is a form of silencing others. And that's what made me want to go into medicine. Well, years later, I was running up to the clinic to see a patient and Mm -hmm. I, I was late. I'd been in the ICU all day and I didn't have time to look and see who I was supposed to see. And I opened the door up and lo and behold, sitting on the examination table was Dr. Maya Angelin. Mm-hmm. And she was my patient for the day. And I couldn't even speak, Gloria. I mean, I was, <laughs> I, was saying. I couldn't talk. I mean, are you kidding me? No, I I, I I was so stunned. And she saw that, you know, and I, I told her I'd read her books and, mm-hmm. and I was a huge fan. And she, you know, I think she got a kick out of that. <laughs> but I I learned that day, then and there, what happened in my brain was this: my mother saying, "West, every person is a person. Put your left hand on their shoulder and hold their right hand with your right hand. Mm -hmm. And so I put my hand on her shoulder and I held her hand and I looked her in the eyes and I said, how can I help you? And what's going on that brings you to the doctor today? She was having some lung problems. I have permission to use her story. I have permission to use everybody in the book and they're all on the website. If you go to icudelirium.org for the readers, icudelirium.org, we have a photo gallery of all the people in the book, including Maya Angelou, And my first patients and all the way, you know, Marcus Cobb's, et cetera. But anyway, Maya had a lung problem. She was trying to write a poem for Bill Clinton's inauguration. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. On the Pulse of Morning. And she was nervous because the only other poet who had ever read an inauguration was Robert Frost. Right. And Frost had had a problem. The wind messed up the poem that he was supposed to read that day. So he didn't have a copy. And he actually had to pivot and read a different poem that he had from memory because he couldn't read the one that was in his hand. And so that day, Maya didn't want any such trouble. So we got her her lungs in order. She did a beautiful job as Mm -hmm. everybody's seen it before. What's really amazing about the whole experience is in closing is that later on, as I was writing this book, I was able to communicate with her son, Guy Johnson, and he's a poet himself. And I asked him, what was it like to grow up with your mother? And he said, you know, I didn't deserve it, but I grew up in her light. Mm. And he said, it's always been an experience that expanded me. Mm. And this is in the book. There's a thing in the book. and I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to tell you this. I said, Mr. Johnson, can you teach me something that she taught you, like something that's, that you carry with you that nobody knows? He said, she said, son, I write from the Black perspective, but I aim for the human heart. Wow, right? Yes. Yeah.
2: Incredible.
0: She aims for the human heart. So, this is now a mantra of mine. Mm -hmm. Every day when I'm in the hospital, every time I'm at the Walgreens, when I'm driving on the highway, I'm trying to aim for that human heart. And as a physician, I want to lift that person up and be present for them. And Maya helped me learn that.
1: But you have this willingness to be vulnerable and humble with your patients are they teaching that in medical school now? <laughs> it's like, well, how can you share this with medical students? Cause this, I mean, they're under a lot of pressure. You know, you know this, you know, all this, you were a medical student once too.
0: Yeah, they, they, you know, the medical profession. whether you're a nurse, a pharmacist, a doctor, it doesn't matter where your area is. And I don't want to leave anybody out. PAs, NPs, you know, hospital chaplains, we all have so much pressure to get more knowledge. And yet we have to teach the students that that's only part of your formation. When we are going through discernment and vocational direction, we have to be taught that compassion, for example, compassion, a uh, compassio to suffer with. Yes. Part of our compassion has to be to dive down into the life and the chaos of our patient and find out who they are and be present with them during that suffering. And you know, Part of the mission of this book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, is to bring this message to medical schools and medical students mm-hmm. and- And say, one of the things we want to do for our patients is to provide mercy. And my working definition of mercy is the willingness to dive into the chaos of my patient's life and also provide lifting and healing. And so that latter part is really key, Gloria, because we we have to realize that, you know, for years I dove into chaos just by putting people on ventilators and giving them antibiotics. And I was Mm -hmm. diving in their chaos, but I wasn't necessarily providing lifting and healing. Lifting and healing comes when we look at the person in the eyes, hold their hand, and say, "How may I serve you?"
1: Mm. I mean, <laughs> that's that's humility too, because you know we often, you know, I think the way doctors are perceived and treated is, you know, king of the hill, top of the, and it's come in and have the doctor say, "How can I serve you?" Just really takes me back to the Lord saying, "You have to serve." And so I imagine that. I mean, I know you're Catholic, maybe our listeners, they should have picked up on it just based on how you're talking, but I imagine your faith helped shape this approach, help you make this approach. And and let me just say this, I would imagine it has to help you carry the crosses of people's suffering. Because I'm thinking about the anxiety that people are under when they have trouble breathing. I'm thinking of the fear. And a lot of people run away from that fear and suffering. But I'm wondering how your faith helped you to be able to bear this, really.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, let me tell you another story, if you don't mind. I was with a patient recently, mm-hmm. and she started crying. She was COVID patient. And in her suffering, she was short of breath. She was scared, as you mm-hmm. just said. And she was suffering. She had a nasal cannula on, a high-flow nasal cannula. She was headed for a ventilator. And she eventually did get put on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. And she said, Dr. Ely, can I tell you why I didn't get vaccinated? Now, we have plenty of patients up in the hospital who have been vaccinated on ventilator too. So this is not just about people who didn't get vaccinated, but, but let mm-hmm. me just tell this story. And she said, first of all, let me tell you, can you doctor, please tell my family to get vaccinated? Because I was wrong. And I said, I promise I will tell them. And I did. And they did get vaccinated. And then I knelt down and I held her hand. I looked in her eyes and she held my hand. And she said, I didn't get vaccinated because the man on the TV said that they were trying to kill people like me. Mm. Wow. So this is a great degree of suffering from misinformation that she's going through because that person was spouting something that wasn't true, first of all, and we have an immense amount of science and knowledge to tell us that that woman was suffering from misinformation. So her suffering made me want to come and serve her and lift her up. And so my response was this, speaking of compassion, we can teach medical students that a simple 30-second compassionate statement can be taught to people that may not be innate for them mm-hmm. such as the following miss smith i see your suffering and i don't know exactly how you're suffering because i'm not in your shoes mm-hmm. but i can tell you this i will not leave you i will stay with you during this time i am your physician i'm going to be here with you and i will keep asking you what matters to you mm-hmm. and i'm going to keep asking you that question and i'm going to keep trying to address what matters to you so that i can show you the love and the dignity that you deserve what i'm doing there is i'm bringing my faith into that room and i'm saying "Veni sancti spiritus come holy spirit come holy spirit come into my mind whisper in my ear and help me put my needs aside so that i can dive into this person's life and be present as your hands and your eyes and bring the science as well as the personal touch
1: oh wow that is incredible that's beautiful I mean, honestly, I'm thinking that actually is a way for marriage to, you know, any kind of intimate relationship. What a beautiful approach and asking for God's help to inspire you, to be with you, to guide you. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. I'll tell you, a few weeks ago, I got an email in my inbox that was from the Christophers.
1: Oh yeah, I was about to ask you about that. Let me just say this, for the people who don't know what the Christophers are They give an award. It's a Christian organization that celebrates works that basically exemplify the Chinese proverb, it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness and also affirm the highest values of the human spirit. I got that right.
0: Yeah. Sort of. Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> so they talk to you. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a very cool story that you won't know behind this. So I got the email and they said that EDDB, Every Deep Drone have had been selected as the 2022 Literature Award for the Christopher. So the paperback is going to have the Christopher symbol on the paperback. But that's not why I'm bringing this up. Why mm-hmm. I'm bringing it up is I can't make this stuff up. This is a true story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. 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 When I was a boy back there when we had no money and I was working in those fields, our family used to get a newsletter from our parish. And in the parish, they had an article in there every time called Light One Candle. Mm. And at the time, it was Father John Cator, C A T O I R. He was the president or whatever of the Christmas. So mm-hmm. he would write this column every week on lighting one candle. And I knew that their motto was it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. So anyway, as I got into medical school, I started my summer job was to draw blood. So I became a phlebotomist. Mm-hmm. So here I am you know, being a phlebotomist and I'm drawing blood. And I had to. one of the places I had to go was this nursing home. And every day there was this one woman in this bed who was demented. And the nurses all said, she's too demented. She won't talk. We just need to these labs. Go draw the blood. So I would mm-hmm. go in there. I'd put a tourniquet on her arm and I'd draw her blood. And one day after doing that, like 20 or 30 times, the sun was shining from the window straight into her eyes, Gloria. Oh, wow. Like beaming straight into her eyes. I thought like, that's got to be uncomfortable. Let me close this curtain. Right. And she had never said a word to me. So I, I closed the curtain and I turn around and I go to put the tourniquet on her arm and she turned her head to me and spoke the first word she ever said and the last word she ever said to me. She opened her eyes and said, all that is light is Jesus Christ. Ooh. Bam. Oh, my. Goodness. Bam. Oh, my. I was like, what, 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 what? So Ooh. I carried that with me. I thought, oh, my gosh, I thought she was demented. She didn't know anything. I treated mm. her as other. I treated her as less than human. Mm. And then she says to me, all this lies Jesus Christ. So anyway, a couple of years later, I wrote to the Christophers, and I, I wrote that story, and they published it in oh. Light One Candle. Oh. So that story was published in the Christopher's thing that I had gotten that it's better light one candle, the curse of darkness. Mm-hmm. And then that was the end of my involvement with the Christopher's. I never had any involvement with them at all until I got this email saying that this book had been awarded the Christopher's award. Oh
1: my goodness, look at that. Is that <laughs> crazy? That's crazy. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It just comes right back around. That's beautiful. You know what? Dr. Wes Ely, thank you so much for really your gift of self. <laughs> as an example of what authentic healthcare looks like, of how we as believing people can help make others more seen, more heard, more cared for, and reminding ourselves that each human person has an inestimable dignity as they are made in the image and likeness of God. And if we could hold on to that boy, we could really change the world. And imagine changing healthcare, That'll be something that's huge. So I just I just want to thank you so much and for your vulnerability, not just with your patients, but also here with our listeners and really sharing these beautiful stories of the people you've encountered and also how your life experience has changed, not only you, but changed how you practice medicine to care for the whole
0: person. Thank you so much, Gloria. And I really appreciate the time to be with all of you here today. And I hope that people will reach out and let me know what they get from this, how they find their heart. And remember that I'm not making any money on this, by the way. Every penny from this book is donated to COVID survivors. We're establishing an endowment for them to lift them up and to create. uh, We're going to hire social workers so that they can have a way to apply for disability and find their way in life after hardship.
1: Dr. Wes Ealing, my goodness, just beautiful. We're going to put links in the show notes for everything that we talked about, so people have those references. And just again, thank you so much for your beautiful witness. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to see you again.
0: Oh, thank you, Gloria, and take care of your daughter and your wonderful husband.
1: Thank you. I will. Bye, everybody. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purpose podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member or anyone you know that's interested in healthcare. I think it's an important conversation. And I'm also thinking of those high school students that are thinking of maybe going into medicine. They need to hear this conversation. So please share this episode with them. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And could you leave us a review? I'd really love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. See you next time.